We continue our series, A Charge to Keep. We've got a couple more weeks to go, looking at the commands of Jesus Christ, because He is the one that said we should go and teach others, all disciples, to observe what He's uh, taught us. And so this morning, we're going to look at another one of Jesus' commands. And like several other of His commands, this one has a promise attached to it. In other words, what the Lord is telling us here is not only will He instruct us and charge us to follow His command, but He Himself will also uh, give to us in relationship to us following that command. So, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, you so do to them. We've looked at a number of those commands that are in that text. He continues, if you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And it's that last sentence in which we find the command of Jesus to give. I don't know how many of you read novels, uh, but I love them. And one of my favorite novelists is John Grisham. He's written 38 novels, and his 10th novel was called The Testament, which was even more than a novel, it was his statement of faith. The reason many think that that's true of that novel, The Testament, is because he tells a story of redemption. Now, Webster defines redemption two different ways. First of all, Webster says redemption is an action of saving or being saved from sin or error. But it's not that definition that Grisham seizes on, it's a second definition, and that definition is this. It is the action of gaining or regaining possession of something through a payment. And Grisham understands that. Listen to the trailer of the book. In a plush Virginia office, a rich, angry old man is feverishly rewriting his will. 
With his death just hours away, Troy Phelan will, or wants to send a message to his children, to his ex-wives, and to his minions, a message that will touch off a vicious legal battle transforming dozens of lives. Phelan's new will names a sole survivor, an heir to his $11 billion estate. A mystery woman named Rachel Lane, who's a missionary living deep in the jungles of Brazil. Enter the lawyers. Nate O'Reilly is fresh out of rehab. A disgraced corporate attorney who is handpicked for one last job to find Rachel at all cost. As the Phelan family circles like vultures in D.C., Nate goes through the jungles of Brazil entering a world where money means nothing, where death is just one misstep away, where a woman pursued by enemies and friends alike holds a stunning surprise of her own. You know that surprise? She is willing to pay the price for Nate O'Reilly's redemption. After months of searching in the jungle, he finally finds Rachel. She's at an unreached people group. She's deep in the jungle, and when he finds her, he begins a conversation with her that lasts several weeks. She tell, he tells her about her father, who she's never met. He's a multi-billionaire, and she alone is his heir. And she says, I'm not interested in him, and I'm not interested in his money. And Nate says, you got to be. I mean, who, who would turn down such an inheritance? And she said, I would. So after weeks of trying to convince her, he leaves and goes about a month away and he contacts his handlers in D.C. and they say to him, give it one more try. When he gets back to another village where she had been living, he finds that she's dead. Malaria. And as he's ready to leave, the chief of the tribe comes out and hands him a box. And in that box is her last will and testament. She said, I've written my last will and testament following the pattern my father used. All of my estate I now put into a trust to support the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ the healing of the sick, the education of children, the protection of indigenous people in Brazil and South America. And then she says, I name Nate O'Reilly as the administrator of this trust with broad discretion. And then Grisham says, on the next to the last page, somehow Rachel knew he wasn't a drunk anymore. She knew his addictions were gone. The demons that had controlled his life had been locked away forever. She could see in him what Jesus had done in his heart. Somehow she knew he was searching. She found the calling for him. God had told her. In other words, Rachel gives up her fortune so that Nate can find his. Her payment redeems Nate O'Reilly and seals his identity forever. Now that's redemption. That's the second definition that Webster uses. 
And no gospel writer understands that better than Luke. In fact, in the text we just read, we find, if you compare that to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, that Luke gives us much more of what Jesus said than Matthew does. A few weeks ago, Ken Wagner was here and he preached on Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and following, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, it will be judged to you. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. But Luke expands it. In that same discussion of judgment, Luke tells us that at the heart of Jesus' command not to judge is the matter of redemption. Listen to what Jesus says. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. Right after he talks about judgment, he says, don't judge, don't condemn, but give. And with that command comes a promise that obligates the one who gives as well as the one who is received. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the look. Look at verse 8, or look at verse 38. First word, give. Jesus says, instead of condemning, I say give. Instead of condemning others, give to others. Now in Matthew 6, Jesus leads up to that statement about judgment by saying this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And over the years, people have given all kinds of interpretations of what Jesus means when he says the eye is the lamp of the body. And some of them are wild. (laughs) And many people have asked, what does Jesus mean? The eye is the lamp of the body. And the answer to that question is found in the first century in which Jesus lived because the Jews used that term, the eye, as a figure of speech. In fact, they used it to describe a person's attitude toward others. The Jews said to have a good eye meant that you were concerned with the needs of others, not just your own. You were generous in giving to others. If you have a good eye, you're not only looking to your own needs, but the needs of others. To have a bad eye meant just the opposite. It meant that you were greedy and you were self-centered. It meant that you kept what you had for yourself and you were blind to the needs of others. If you had a bad eye... It means you have an eye that only focuses on yourself. Decades ago, in another city, I knew a man who was a friend of mine who didn't like Jesus. And that was a problem because he was an organist and choir director. And he didn't like Jesus. He told me he didn't like him. And I thought to him, I said to him, how do you play those hymns and songs every week that extol the virtue and the glory of Jesus when you can't stand him? He said, I can compartmentalize. And I asked him, why do you dislike Jesus? And he said, because he's not fair. And he said, you know that story he told in Matthew chapter 20 about that landowner who had a big harvest to uh, reap and he had no workers, so he went and hired some workers early in the morning. 
And he said to them, if you go into my field and you work all day, I'll give you a whole day's wage. So far, so good. My friend's okay with that. But then Jesus continues. A couple hours later, he hires another group and he sends them into the field. And then another group and then another group. And all through the day, even the last hour of light, he's hiring people. And when they all come together to get paid, he pays everyone the same. And my friend explodes and says, that's not fair. Jesus is not fair. And his reaction was exactly the same reaction of the first hired servants of the day. They didn't like what the master did either. They're angry. They feel abused. They feel as though they're victims of a great injustice. Remember what the master says to them? Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money or do you begrudge my generosity? Now that's what the English translation says. You know what Jesus literally says? And we find it in Greek. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or is your eye bad because I'm good? See, what Jesus is saying is you've got a bad eye. You only care about yourself. The Jews understood the ability to see far extends beyond our optic nerve. They understood the ability to see describes one, one's attitude and response to the needs of others. I mean, a great example is the text Barrett read earlier from Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, I want you to take your only son, your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. The Bible says early in the morning, Abraham gets up with Isaac, who is arguably about 21 or 2. And he loads him with wood and he loads him with all the necessary equipment. They go up on the mountain and he prepares the sacrifice. He ties his son onto the sacrifice. He's got the knife in the hand and God stops him. Don't lay a hand on him, the Lord says. Now I know that you fear me. The Bible says Abraham looks and he sees a ram caught by his horns in the thicket. And so he takes the ram, he puts him on the altar, and he sacrifices the ram instead of his son. Then the Bible says the name of the place, Abraham said, the name of this place is Moriah, for the Lord will provide. That's what the English says, but you know what the Hebrew says? The name of this place is Moriah, for the Lord sees. In other words, the Lord has a very good eye. Now think of this. Without the ram, Isaac's dead. Without the substitute, Isaac has to die. Without the gift, Abraham would have had to pay the price of his own redemption. You see what Jesus, when he commands us to give, he's calling us to pay the price to meet the needs of others. He's calling us into the work of redemption. And the work of redemption is always making a price, paying a price, so that someone might come to know the calling of God in their life.
That's exactly what Scott talked about last week when he talked about loving one another. There is no love without a price paid. That's true of redemption as well. And then second, notice not only the look, notice the link. Look at the next six words of the verse. Give and it will be given to you. Now that's a promise. Think of what Jesus is saying. When you are convinced that God is able and willing to meet your need, your eye will become increasingly good. In other words, your attitude toward God determines your attitude toward others. In other words, if you are stingy, it's because you believe God's stingy. God is unable, to, unable and unwilling to meet your needs. You can't give away what you have because you might not have anything, which means God won't provide for you. To have a bad eye is to think that having enough is your concern and not anyone else's. No wonder Jesus says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, what he's saying is, if your eye is bad, if you're just focused on yourself, your life will become increasingly dark because all you see is yourself. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Now, that's exactly the opposite of the prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel says? If you give, God is obligated to give back to you. So give so you can get. Now, that's a bad eye desire. It's like there's sort of a cosmic casino. You know, you, you put down a bet and God will reward in spades. Or at least in aces. <laughs> The prosperity gospel appeals to the bad eye. It says, sow a seed and you'll reap a multiple harvest. Sow a seed and you can increase your fortunes. Place a bet on God, He'll pay off. That's not what Jesus is saying. And the early church knew it. They knew what Jesus was saying. Acts chapter 4, we read that they overflowed in their giving away of their stuff. In Acts chapter 4, we see them loving each other. Freeing themselves from their focus on themselves. You see, their status and security was set. They were convinced that their father in heaven had a very good eye. He'd take care of them, so they needed to help him or be engaged in the same thing he was doing, redeeming lives of others. So notice the link here. When Jesus commands us to give, it's so that we might join in redeeming others from the bondage that they have to themselves so that they may gain possession of what God intends for them. And then third and finally, notice the last L, the lap. The whole verse. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. And that makes sense. You know, we give something to somebody, we pour it into their lap, maybe. But that's not really what the, Jesus is saying. That same word, translated lap, is translated differently in John chapter 13. Remember the scene? Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's gathering around that table with his disciples. Remember in the first century, the table was low, and so everybody's head was near the table, resting on their hand, and their feet were out from the table. 
And John says there's one disciple whom Jesus loved that had his head on the bosom of Jesus. Same word. Same word. In fact, Jesus uses that same word when he talks about a rich man who dies and he goes to the place of the dead, a place of torment, and not long before that, the same guy who was poor and laid in his door and he gave him nothing, that poor guy dies and he goes to the bosom of Abraham. In other words, this poor guy is laying on the chest of Abraham. Now think about where the bosom is. It's the chest closest to the heart. I mean, what John is saying is there is one, and it was him, whom Jesus loved, and he laid his head right next to Jesus' heart, just like the poor man in that parable Jesus tells. You see, what Jesus is saying is, when you give, I will give back to you. And he uses a, a term from business. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not just going to give you a fair deal. I'm not just going to give you a, a full measure. I'm going to give you an overflowing measure. I'm going to give you a portion that you aren't even able to, to get grab hold of. It's going to be an overflowing portion. You know what Jesus means? When you give, I'm going to give back to you and I'm going to get, put it all the way into your heart. I'm going to change your heart. That's why a friend of mine said that if he had to go and preach somewhere for the first time, for the, you know, he was a pastor somewhere and, and they called him to the church, he said for the six, first six months he'd preach on giving. He said because giving enables our hearts to get right. And when your hearts are right, then redemption breaks out all over the place. Jesus said, I'm not going to just give you a fair measure, adequate portion. I'm going to give you an overflowing portion. I'm going to deposit a huge deposit into your heart. So while you may, while your gift may be used to preach the gospel or to feed the hungry or clothe the naked or care for others or care for the indigenous people of Brazil or elsewhere, my gift is to you will go one place. It'll go into your heart to soften it, to change it, to redeem it from a bad eye to a good eye. Jesus knows giving is contagious. Not just in others' lives, but in your own. That's what happened to Donald. He was a mid-level manager at a large manufacturing company in the South. Though he's a Christian, he gave next to nothing. And he used to say to his co-workers, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and that's the way he lived. Then one day he gets a phone call that changes his life. His uncle Mike died. 
Mike was a multimillionaire, and he, Mike, has written a will that names Donald as his executor. His wishes are clear. He wants his $5 million to be dispersed to Christian ministry over the next 12 years around the world. So Donald sets out with all of his business acumen and he vets six different organizations that will receive Uncle Mike's money. Within a few months, he starts getting reports back that lives are being changed. So he decides to take trips to see these ministries in action, and he does. He's so impressed by the ministry that's happening in those places that after eight years, he's dispensed all of his uncle's money, and he begins to fund it himself. And then he makes a decision. Instead of retiring at 65, he decides to work till he's 75 so that he would accumulate enough money with interest that he can fund these ministries for the rest of his life and the lives of others. You see, when John Grisham writes the, the novel, The Testament, it's a story of fiction. And yet it's exactly the same story that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6. Without Jesus' gift, none of us would ever have gained the possession of a new heart or a good eye. And the truth is, the gospel is all about redemption. And redemption always begins and ends with giving. His giving and our giving. And that's why on this second Sunday of Advent, there's no better time to think about this command and ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to keep it. Think about that. Amen.